if you're taking outline or if you're taking notes this morning, I do have an outline for you to, to kind of follow along with. Okay, so just remember our passage this morning, it's really looking at the human response, how we respond to this gift of righteousness that we have from God in Christ. And our response, I think, is really a rejection of three things. I think first, the passage instructs us to reject boasting. Secondly, I think the passage instructs us to reject exclusivity. And I will explain that as we get into it. And then third, I think the passage instructs us to reject apathy. So this will be our outline this morning. First thing we are to reject, it is boasting. Verse 27 of our passage, where then is boasting? Where then, in light of the gospel, in light of this gift of righteousness that we have in Christ, where is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, the the Jews were very boastful, generally speaking. They boasted in their self-righteousness. They boasted in their access to and adherence to the law. They boasted in their circumcision. They boasted in the things that they trusted in for their justification before God. I think it's a helpful place for us to start this morning to ask this question. When and where do you feel the need to boast in yourself? What do you often rely on for your own justification? Maybe not before God necessarily, maybe before others. I'm not suggesting that you actually are going around and boasting in these things. But the question is, where and when do you feel the itch to do so? Where do you feel the pull, the temptation to just exalt yourself a little bit, to boast in yourself a little bit? Are there moments when you're in a conversation and you sense this need to make sure the person that you're talking to knows just how great and knowledgeable you are? Are there moments where you're sitting in a meeting Someone else seems to get the credit for something that you have done and you've sensed this need, this pull to just set the record straight. There are moments maybe when you seem to go unnoticed or unappreciated and you think to yourself, guys, wait a second, look, I'm over here. Here I am, pay attention to me, I matter too. And in these moments, what are the things that you feel the need to boast about? Is it your character? Do you feel the need to draw attention to your maturity or your sound judgment or your compassion or your morality? Sometimes we feel the need to boast in how humble we are. Maybe we feel the need to boast in our competency, not just our character, but how skilled we are, our abilities or our knowledge. Maybe it's not our character or our competency. Maybe it's our capacity, just how much we can do. We find ourselves wanting to talk about just how much we can, we can lift, <laughs> how fast we can run, how much we can do with how little sleep we got last night. Whatever it is, we, we find this temptation, this pull in ourselves to exalt ourselves just a little bit over other people. What place does this have for the Christian? Paul writes it's excluded 
We're to reject all boasting. All of it is excluded. Boasting is excluded. And then he says, by what kind of law? And as we work through the passage, it's going to be important to understand what Paul means when he uses the word law today, okay? Here, when he uses the word law, it's most likely being used to mean this general principle at work. Paul's asking, by what principle is boasting excluded? By a principle of works? No. Why not? Why is it not by a principle of works? Well, if we operated according to a principle of works, then we would have every reason and every need to boast. A principle of works would say that your salvation and your worth and your identity and your righteousness, your justification, all of it comes from your character, competency, and capacity. The more you do, the better you do it, translates to the greater merit for salvation or a greater value as a person. See, a principle of works, it it doesn't exclude boasting. It encourages it. It necessitates it. On the contrary, Paul says, boasting is excluded by a law or a principle of faith. Verse 28, he says, we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Faith in what? Jump back to verse 22 of chapter 3. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Boasting is excluded by the principle of faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, how does this actually work? How does it work? How how is it that we're actually justified, declared righteous by faith? Okay, I want to try to help us understand this by way of analogy to see how, in fact, boasting must be excluded. Okay, I love the Olympics. Anyone else love the Olympics? Okay, good. It's fantastic. I love watching the Olympics. I like to ask people this icebreaker question. If you were in the Olympics, what, what activity or what event would you want to participate in? I think it's a great icebreaker question. Now there's, there's one event in the Olympics that the person who takes the gold medal home of this particular event is said to be the greatest athlete in the world. Okay. And that event is a track and field event, the decathlon. Okay, the decathlon, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a multi-sport track and field event that happens over the course of two days. It includes the 100, the 400, the 1500 meter runs. You have the 110 hurdles, the high jump, the long jump, the shot put, the discus, the pole vault, and the javelin. Okay, that's, that's all one event. And you get one gold medal for all those events together. Ashton Eaton of the United States took home the gold medal in both the 2012 and 2016 Summer Olympics. In addition, he has two gold medals from the World Championships and three gold medals from the Indoor World Championships in the decathlon. There is no question that 10 years ago, that man, Ashton Eaton, was the greatest all-around track and field athlete in the world. So I I want you to imagine something now. Imagine that you're at the 2016 Games in Rio. Okay, and you're, you are a track and field junkie. You love track and field. The decathlon is your jam. You've, you're, you've been so excited to watch this event. 
You've watched all of day one events. It's day two. It's the 1500 meter run. And you're watching Ashton Eaton round that last curve down the home stretch of the 1500 meter run to secure his gold medal. And he does it. He's your hero. You go nuts. You you can't wait for this medal ceremony. You're going to watch this medal ceremony and see Ashton Eaton on that podium, the gold medal around his neck, the American flag around his shoulders, the national anthem playing for his name. Got that going through your head? Here's another piece of the puzzle. For the last five years, as Ashton Eaton has been training to become the world's greatest athlete, you, on the other hand, have fallen completely off the wagon. Okay, you, you've had two Big Macs a day. You haven't lifted anything heavier than your phone. You haven't walked any further than the distance between your couch and your car. Okay, that's you, the last five years. Somehow you managed to get yourself to Rio to watch this event live. But you are as far away from healthy and fit as you can possibly be. And so there you are in Rio, a couple of Big Macs away from a heart attack. The medal ceremony is about to be in. And all of a sudden, several Olympic officials rush towards you. They get you out of your seat and they escort you towards the podium. And they stand you on the top tier of that podium, first place. Your name is announced over the speakers. Ashton Eaton himself comes out with his gold medal and he places that gold medal around your neck. The American flag is draped around your shoulders. The national anthem plays for your name. What do you have to boast in? Like nothing. You didn't do anything. You are experiencing in that moment the fruit of victory, but your victory is based completely on somebody else's credentials. You are all together unworthy of that gold medal, but it is yours if you receive it. This might be an insufficient picture, but it is a picture nonetheless of the gospel. Your victory, your salvation, the crown of righteousness that you receive is not based on your own credentials. It doesn't come from a principle of works. It comes from a principle of faith. Your salvation is based fully on the work of Christ. It is by his merit that you are saved. So where does faith come into play with all of this? To have faith, to operate on a principle of faith, means to actively receive Christ's sufficient merit. It is to believe that you have done nothing to earn your salvation, and Christ has done everything. Verse 28 Paul writes, we conclude that a person is justified by faith. In other words, a person is justified by actively receiving the work that Christ has done as sufficient to justify you apart from the works of the law. That is faith. Imagine this auditorium right now is actually a storehouse. For everything good you've ever done. Your character, your competency, your capacity, all of those things that we're we're tempted to boast in, all of it 
it's visible somehow in the form of some little magical ball, okay? So every good deed just comes in this little magic ball. If you've seen the movie Inside Out, then you kind of have a picture of what I'm talking about. It's memories that are stored in this little ball, but that's not what I'm talking about. Good works are stored in this little ball, okay? That's, that's what I'm talking about. Anything of any worth you've ever done is captured, and it's stored in this auditorium. But, but then imagine there's this six-foot-wide brick wall, completely impenetrable. No holes, no windows, no doors. Okay, And that, that wall is right down the middle, and it goes from floor to ceiling. And all of your works, everything you've ever done of any eternal significance, any act of love towards others, any mental or physical effort put forth, any sincere act of obedience to God, anything worth boasting in, It's been captured in these little balls. They're all on one side of this brick wall, okay? So this whole auditorium, storing all of your good works, but on one side. You know what's on the other side of that brick wall? It's the cross of Christ. Which side is the source of your righteousness? It's the cross of Christ. It's not the cross of Christ and something else from the other side. Right? Nothing, absolutely nothing you do can be added to the work of Christ to secure your salvation, your justification, your righteousness before God. And to have faith, to operate on this principle of faith that Paul is speaking of, is to receive this righteousness as a gift that is based on Christ and his merit and not your own. Boasting is excluded. It doesn't cross over to the other side of the wall. Boasting is excluded. You know, for some of you, boasting is just your natural bent. This ought to humble you. For others, though, your natural bent is more of one that says, I'll never be good enough. You can walk around discouraged defeated in yourself, wishing that you had something to boast in. This ought to free you. See, when it comes to your right standing before God, anything you deem worth boasting in, whether that's in yourself or others, it must be rejected. Nothing you have done, nothing you could do, nothing you wish you could do, nothing you will do, will ever be considered in declaring your righteousness before God. Boasting is excluded. This is the first response we have to the gospel that we see in our passage. We reject any and all boasting in what we have done. But the second response that we see in our passage this morning is the rejection of exclusivity. In other words, this excessive pride in in who we are, this idea that we're on the inside and other people are on the outside— See, this is especially true of the Jews who would boast in the fact simply that they were Jews. Their ethnicity and all that came with it, including their circumcision, the ceremonies, the written law, all of it, it became this reason for them to boast, which which is why Paul writes this in verse 29 and 30. He says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. See, Paul, he's already done his work in uniting the Jews and Gentiles in their condemnation, but he's going further than that now. He's saying, now the Jews and Gentiles, guess what? They're not just united in their condemnation, they are united in their justification. A Jewish reader of Romans for the first time might have already made this inference back in chapter 2 when, when Paul wrote that a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. A tr- and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit and not the letter. Uh, a Jew paying attention here would have read that and, and thought to themselves, hmm, it seems like what Paul is saying is that true conversion True faith is for the Gentile as well as the Jew. But when we get to our passage this morning, there's no inference required here. Right? It's not implicit. It's explicit. God, or Paul states explicitly that justification by grace through faith is a gift available to all people, Jews and Gentiles, Because God is not many but one. The creator of the Jews and the redeemer of the Jews is the creator and redeemer of the Gentiles. He intends for both to be united together in the gospel. This is the mystery hidden for ages that Paul writes of in Ephesians. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, it says this, "The, The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, so what is this great mystery? What is it that Paul wants us to finally know? It's finally been revealed to us. It's this in verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. This means that the Jews didn't have special access to God just because they were Jews. Their salvation, too, it also came through faith. The Jews had much the Gentiles did not have, right? They, they had the written law. They had the sign of circumcision. They had their ancestry. They had these ceremonial rituals and holidays and festivals, but all of them from the Lord. But none of these had any worth when it came to their justification before God or their union with him. So here's why this matters. The gospel is for all nations. It is for all people everywhere. The gospel demands a rejection of exclusivity. God's righteousness is not just reserved for the Jews. It's available to all who believe. We are the benefactors of that. All people from every tongue, tribe, nation, they have righteousness available to them through Christ. This is why as a church we care deeply about missions. This is why we invest thousands and thousands of dollars and hours and resources and prayers in sending workers to places where the gospel has not yet taken root. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. When I say we, we need to reject ex- exclusivity, there is exclusivity baked, baked into the gospel. It's just not exclusivity based on ethnicity, culture, background, or anything else. It's exclusivity based on belief and unbelief in the gospel. Righteousness is exclusively given to those who have faith in Christ. Nothing more. 
So consider the person who could not be more different than you in ethnicity, language, culture, family values, history, food preferences, childhood experiences, whatever it is. Consider that person. The gift of righteousness through faith in Christ is available to that person as much as it is to you. And if that person has faith in Christ, then they are declared righteous before God, just as you have been declared righteous before God if you know Christ. That person is united with you in the gospel. They are included with you in the covenant promises of God. And if this is true of the person who is as different from you as you can possibly imagine, then it is equally true of the people who are sitting in this room with you. People might have different convictions around parenting and politics or finances and food or vaccines and vacations. But that person's righteousness does not come from sharing the same preferences as you. It does not come from anything, anything but the spilled blood of Christ. I think it can be easy to think about unreached people around the world or, or think about the atheist at the workplace, the person who doesn't know Christ across the street, and think to, them, think to yourself, oh, if only they could see the gospel. If only they could see that they could be set free from their sin, that they could receive right standing before God, if they would just come to know Christ, if they would just receive the gift of grace through faith that we have in Christ. But when it comes to other believers, it seems as though we can find ourselves more concerned with their right standing before us based on their works and their fulfillment of our expectations on them rather than their right standing before God based on their faith in Christ. Verse 28, for we conclude that a person, any person is justified, declared righteous before God by faith apart from the works of the law. Why is it so easy then for us, myself included, to have an attitude of exclusivity towards a brother or sister in Christ who speaks the same language as you or sits with you under the same teaching from God's word, who has covenanted together with you in membership, who shares the Lord's Supper with you? Why can it be easy to think, well, I can't be united with this person unless they parent like me or vote like me or care about the same ministries that I care about to the same degree that I care about them or understand my hurts or share my experiences or communicate the way that I want them to. I can't be united unless their works meet my expectations. Yes, you can. And you must. 
The gospel demands that we reject such prideful exclusivity and a heart of criticism. There's a couple problems with this, though. Okay, one problem is that it's hard to recognize in ourselves. And it's really hard to reject something when we don't detect that it's there in the first place. So how do we recognize it? Well, I think first, we just have to be aware. <laughs> we have to be aware of our thought patterns towards others. We need to pay attention to subtle comments that come out of our mouths about other people. We need to pay attention to slight internal reactions that we have when someone else's name is brought up or, or when we run into them. But, but once you recognize this critical attitude in your heart, this, the second problem then is, well, where did it come from? Like, where did it even start to begin with? See, it's easier, I think, to reject something if we understand where it starts or where it comes from. So this might not be true in every case, but I think in many cases, this attitude of exclusivity, in other words, I'm on the inside and they're on the outside. I can't be really united with them. It's an attitude of criticism. I think in many cases, it starts generally in our mind as we compare ourselves to others. I think it starts with comparison. Okay, it's, it's easy. It is easy to look at external, visible qualities of another person's life, whether it's their physical appearance, their talents, their financial situation, their family, their job, whatever it is. Then we look at our own, and we think, mm, if only my life was more like that. I would be something more than what I am. I would, I would be more valuable. I would be more liked. I would be more content. So it starts with comparison. And when, when we think this way, what we're doing is we're generating thought patterns. Okay? They get pressed into our minds about what really matters and what establishes the worth of a human. And this comparison, if left unchecked, can easily give way to competition where, where we start pursuing the things that we think are going to make us more valuable, more loved, more content. It's not to say we shouldn't notice positive qualities in others. That's not what I'm saying. We should appreciate them. We should even seek to emulate them as they make sense. But when it moves into the realm of competition, of wanting to be better than others on the outside, then this competition, what it does is it gives way to critique. It starts with comparison. It leads to competition and finally, it has its fulfillment in criticism, in critique. We bring others down in our minds. We elevate ourselves. We're, in a sense, boasting in who we are. The, the thought patterns that we have when we compare ourselves to others and think, oh, if only I were more like them, they are the same thought patterns, just in reverse, that look at others and think, oh, if only they were more like me. In verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Is he not also the God of your brother and sister in Christ? Is he not also the God of your spouse, of your roommate, of your pastor, of your community group leader? He is. 
he is, which means the right, their righteousness is also through faith in Jesus Christ and not through the things they do. This is the lens we've got to see one another through. It doesn't mean we don't speak into other people's lives. If we notice areas of sin in people's lives, we should speak into that. It doesn't mean that we don't strive to set an example in faith and love and purity for others. It doesn't mean we shouldn't allow ourselves to be convicted and exhorted by one another's example. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to give counsel or receive counsel from others. But it does mean that when it comes to our attitude towards one another in the church, comparison Competition and criticism, they have no place. This, this prideful exclusivity, I'm on the inside, you're on the outside, it has no place. We must reject prideful exclusivity and a critical heart. See, no one was more deserving of condemnation than you, and no one is less deserving of God's gift of righteousness than you. That ought to be the starting point of our relationships in the church is seeing one another through that lens. And so our response to the gospel in our passage, it's to reject boasting. It's to reject this attitude of exclusivity. And finally, it is to reject apathy. So the final thing Paul does in the passage is he just asks the next logical question. Verse 31 says, do we then nullify the law through faith? Meaning, if it's, if it's true that we're justified by faith in Christ, if nothing that we have done, right? You've got this massive six-foot brick wall in through the middle. If nothing on that side of the room matters, has any value when it comes to being justified before God, then it, is it altogether pointless? That's the question. Does it matter at all? Do we nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this is the third response to our justification by being, being by grace alone through faith alone. We, we reject apathy towards obedience of the law. Okay, the fact that our righteousness comes from the principle of faith and not of works, it does not suggest, it does not suggest that obedience is irrelevant or disobedience is inconsequential. Okay, that's not the point. It's the opposite. Paul says we uphold the law. How so? What does it mean for believers who are justified by faith to uphold the law? I think there's two ways we can understand this, okay? I don't think it's one or the other necessarily. I think Paul would affirm both of these. But before we answer that question, what does it actually mean? We've got to understand, again, what does Paul mean by the word law here? See, early in the passage, he used the word law to mean this general principle a law of works or a principle of works versus a law of faith or a principle of faith. Here, however, I think he means something much more specific. Here, when he writes, we uphold the law, I think he very, very clearly means the commands that God has given us in his moral law. They're the commands of God. So what does it mean then to uphold the law? Well, first, we can uphold the law because we are in Christ See, when, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we receive what Christ has done for us, and we reject our own works as the means to justification, the Bible declares us as being found in Christ. 
And Paul has made it clear that on our own, we do not and cannot uphold the law, but Christ did. And because we are in him, we fulfill the law. We uphold the law through him. I think it's a wonderful truth. It's a sweet truth to claim that what Christ has done, we have done because we are in him. That might be what Paul has in mind here, but, but I'm inclined to think he's getting at something a little less abstract. I think the other way that we uphold the law is by walking in obedience to the law. Okay, Paul has been clear, we don't do this perfectly. But when we put our faith in Christ, not only are we in Christ, but the Spirit of Christ is in us. The Spirit of Christ fills us. The Holy Spirit gives us the actual ability to obey God. And God's righteousness, it comes through faith in Christ, not our good works. But what Christ is saying, what Paul is saying here, is that genuine saving faith in Christ will result in good works and obedience to the commands of God. It's not what saves us, but true faith that does save us will result in these things. A faith in Christ that generates apathy towards the commands of God cannot be saving faith. And so what, this is what Paul is saying. We've got to know what the law of God is. What's the law of God? I think we covered this fairly extensively in Romans 2. We know that God gave Israel the moral law, the Ten Commandments. We know of the natural law that's governed by the conscience that exists in every human heart. But then later on in Romans, in chapter 13, Paul seems to simplify things for us a little bit. Here's what he writes in verse 9. He says, the commandments, right? the law, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. I think Paul's just repeating the same idea that Jesus communicated in Matthew 22, Somebody came up to him and says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. One of the most common slogans in all of Christianity, it comes from this passage right here. What is it? Love God. Love people. You've probably seen those exact words on a billboard or a t-shirt, some sign in front of a church out in the country. <laughs> love God, love people. There was a song that came out a couple years about it. It's called Love God, Love People. Maybe you've heard it. It says, got to keep it real simple, keep it real simple, bring everything right back to ground zero because all, it all comes down to this, love God and love people. Isn't this exactly what Jesus said? All the law and the prophets depend on this. It all comes down to this, love God, Love people. In a way, yes. But something doesn't quite sit right with that, at least with me. We're taking Jesus's or Paul's words here, that we're turning them into a slogan or writing a song that says, we just got to keep it real simple. Like it's, it really requires little thought or effort or ambition Matthew 22, Jesus is saying that all the law and the prophets can be summed up in this, love God and love people. Sure, but in 1 John we read, this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, 
Loving God does not erase his commands. It does not nullify the law. It does not nullify his commands. To love God, it's not ambiguous. It's not squishy. It's it's not something that we're entitled to define for ourselves. To love God is to carefully and thoroughly and passionately seek to understand his commands from his word and faithfully live them out, not as a means of obtaining righteousness, but as a response to the righteousness that he has given us in Christ. See, if by faith we can trust Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient to pardon us from our sins and give us his righteousness, then by faith we can trust that his commands that he has given us are good for us and glorifying to him. This is love for God, to obey his commands. What about love for people? Again, it's not squishy. It's not ambiguous. Loving people, it's more than just having feelings of fondness towards them. It's, it's not just accepting them or affirming them in whatever they want to do or be. Do you know what it means to love one another? 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. To love people, it is to give your life for their good. And what is of greater good than Jesus himself? To love others, it is to live and serve and speak in a manner that points others to the source of life, to Christ. Again, not as a means of receiving righteousness, but as a response to the righteousness that we already have received in Christ. And if this is the response, in this response to the gift of righteousness, if we give ourselves to loving God by obeying his commands and loving others by laying our lives down for them, do you know what we will not be doing? We won't be boasting. We won't be exclusive. We won't be apathetic. This is the response that the gospel message demands. It is a response that actually makes sense when we genuinely believe the gospel. And so in closing, I've got one point of application for you. Here's our application this morning. Immerse yourself in the gospel. Drink deeply of the gospel. Allow the gospel to be what daily floods your minds and fuels your love for God and others. And as you grow in your love for God and others, be careful that your good works continue to be fueled by God's work and do not become the object of your boasting. See, the gospel, it is the only thing that allows us to freely and fully reject boasting, exclusivity, and apathy. It is the one message that actually has the power to renew our hearts and turn them towards the worship of God and not ourselves. And this is why every week, As a church, we take the opportunity to immerse ourselves in the gospel together through the Lord's Supper. See, Jesus knew how prone his disciples would be to forget the gospel. He commanded his disciples to remember and proclaim his death through the Lord's Supper when they gathered together. In his love for us, Jesus went to the cross so that by faith we would be made righteous and have eternal life. And this is what we remember through communion. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. The cup represents his blood that was shed for you. 
The Lord's Supper, it is for those who have received Christ through faith. If you're here this morning and you have not yet received Christ, then we would ask that you refrain from taking the Lord's Supper with us. Right? Taking communion this morning is not what you need to do. Instead, you do need to receive Christ. Eternal life is available to you in Christ. You have to receive it by faith. Additionally, if you've not been baptized, rather than partaking the Lord's Supper with us this morning, we would encourage you to first pursue baptism. And if you have questions about that, you want to have a conversation more about baptism, feel free to reach out to myself or one of the other pastors um, that are here this morning. And so the elements are under the seat in front of you. Feel free to grab those at this time. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we can take a few moments together to remember the price that Jesus has paid so that we would be forgiven and be declared righteous before him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what gift we have in Christ. We recognize that apart from you, we are deserving of your wrath. We are deserving of your judgment. We recognize that there's nothing, nothing that we bring to you to make us worthy of your grace and worthy of your salvation, worthy of your righteousness, God. We, don't, we have not earned it in anything that we've done. It is only by grace that we receive your forgiveness. Father, I, I pray, God, that that would, that would just be so clear in our minds. Remind us of that daily. Help us, God, as a church to grow deeper into the gospel. And Lord, give us the grace to respond rightly. God, give us the grace to walk humbly, to not look to boast in ourselves. Give us the grace that we need, Lord, to love others well. God, to see others through the same lens. God, give us the grace that we need passionately seek out your will in your word all as a response to understanding the gospel and what you've done through us we need your grace for this and we pray all of this in christ's name amen